There's an old German story about Dr. Faust. Dr. Faust was a successful scholar, doctor, but he wasn't satisfied. He wanted more. And you know the story, Dr. Faust, he makes a deal with the devil. And so what he gets in the deal is he gets unlimited knowledge and unlimited resources, riches that he could never exhaust, authority, power, pleasure, all of it right at his fingertips all the time. The cost for Dr. Faust? Well, it was just his soul. Of course, that story's been told over the years, culture to culture, you know, it's different subtle variations. But some might say that today we live in the age of Faust. We live in an age where unashamedly, and in fact, as a point of pride, we sacrifice our souls, at least as a culture, in exchange for the pursuit of unbridled pleasure. Whatever we want, it is right to pursue. The only rule is if you want it, go get it. That's our cultural reality. In fact, in our culture, telling ourselves no, what, is that even a thing? Like, do we do that? We're not very good at it. The original Faust story is a cautionary tale. It's a tale warning us that to pursue pleasures at the cost of our soul is, of course, no bargain. It's really a story about temptation. I think it's probably important to acknowledge this morning that temptation is just that. Temptation. That there is an allure to some of our desires. There is a, a compellingness to some of the things that God says we should not pursue, and yet sometimes we want to pursue them. I wonder this morning, where do you face temptation? Where is it that you are feeling that tug to, to walk away from the Lord and to pursue whatever it might be? Today, in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, we're going to see two remarkable truths. The, the first is that the temptation of Jesus is very much unlike our temptation. We see it's unlike our temptation because Jesus was tempted as we are in every way, yet without sin, according to Hebrews 4, verse 15. Jesus doesn't fail. And yet we're also going to see that Jesus' experience of temptation is very much like ours. In that, there were similar desires that Satan sought to, uh, to trap Jesus with similar pursuits, the way we are tempted and the things that we would desire. And so we have a lot to learn this morning from the temptation of Jesus in two ways, seeing Jesus as both the means by which we defeat temptation, that he is our victory, but then also seeing that Jesus is the model for defeating temptation. Faust certainly failed his test. Jesus didn't. And so there is some great encouragement for us this morning as we look at the temptation of Jesus. So let's unpack these verses and see what we need to learn and how it helps us as we face a daily battle against sin. So we're here in Matthew 4. 
We're coming on the heels of Jesus' baptism. Remember, the baptism was important. It was the opening ceremonies for Jesus' public ministry where we see Father, Son, and Spirit in unity in the mission of the gospel, right? The Father proclaims, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit descends as a dove. So all systems are go. We're we're ready for Jesus' ministry to begin. But perhaps somewhat unexpectedly, his ministry starts actually with a moment of seclusion. And we read in verse 1 of Matthew 4, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let me just uh, acknowledge here the the geographical reality, and then we'll talk a little bit more about verse 1. First, Jesus was was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. I just want to show you the setting here so you can grasp the seriousness of of what Jesus faced in his temptation. The baptism of Jesus occurred down here in the Jordan River Valley, uh, not too far from Jerusalem, but this is very low. In fact, the Dead Sea is the lowest uh, point on earth uh, as far as elevation goes, uh, far below sea level. And so anyway, so here's, here's the baptism happening. From there, Jesus is led by the Spirit up, and that's, that's up in elevation into the Judean wilderness. And I just want to show you two pictures here of the Judean wilderness. This one was taken in the early 1900s. Uh, I, I hope you can get a sense of the barrenness of this, of this land, okay? Uh, there's not, you know, the vegetation that grows there, it, it barely grows. It's vegetation that can survive with minimal, minimal, minimal water. There's not, and you can see there's not a lot of it. So there's not a lot going on. I can show you just one more picture just so you get a sense of the, look at that. Look at that. That's the Judean wilderness. And verse 1 says that Jesus was led into the wilderness by whom? By the Spirit. Listen, brothers and sisters, there there are hard days that we face. Difficult circumstances. When we're in a a desert, right? We're in a wilderness, so to speak. But you need to know that wherever it is that you are today, you need to know that the Spirit is leading. That yes, there are difficulties that you're facing, but but there is never a moment where we can say, you know what, God has abandoned me. He's not with me here. There's no hope in this circumstance. You will be tempted, I guarantee it. But as you're tempted... We can never despair and say, oh, God has left us. It's noteworthy here that Jesus is led up to the wilderness by the Spirit. But we also need to note that there was a purpose in coming to the wilderness. It was to be tempted. And that temptation is done by the devil. You'll notice again in verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So we find out in the the book of James that God doesn't tempt us. And by that, what we mean is God does not incite evil in us. God does not cause us to fail. So here we have Satan who does this work of tempting. And it's just like back in the garden in Genesis 3, where Satan comes and, and he is whispering false truths. He'll, we'll see, he'll twist scripture. He'll push, he'll prod. He'll, he'll maybe uh, put a situation in front of us and, and seek, a, seek to, to cause us to fail and to stumble And so here we see that, yes, God is leading, the Spirit's leading, but at the same time, it is Satan himself who does the work of tempting. And we can never uh, be angry with God over our circumstances or or be frustrated and say that God is tempting me. We don't don't say that, right? All that to say, he's up in the wilderness. And in verse 2, we find out that it's not just hard being in the wilderness, that it's, it's hard in that he hasn't been eating. After he has fasted, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
Okay, now let's just pause here. Now, some newer translations would say he is hangry. Okay? <laughs> that's, a, that's a word that we've coined in our culture. And, uh, you know, uh, in our house, hanger is real. Okay, it is real. There are certain members of our family who will go nameless, who if they haven't eaten, you just need to watch your back. Okay? You need to mind your P's and Q's. Okay? Um, and I use a humorous example to make the point that when we're hungry, when we're weak, right, and our body's kind of crying out, I mean, we're, you, you know, you, don't, you miss one meal, you might be cranky. And here Jesus has fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Now, why 40 days and 40 nights? Well, Elijah experienced something similar, 40 days of testing. Um, but probably the primary significance is with the 40 years of wandering that Israel did in the wilderness. In fact, the wilderness is not very different than that wilderness. And as Israel wandered, they faced constant, what? Temptations. But the story of Israel in the wilderness is a story of failure, where over and over again, they failed to trust the Lord in their wilderness. Again, I don't know what wilderness you're in. I know that the Spirit is at work in your life, and I do know this, that you may have failed in your wilderness. But where we fail, Jesus succeeded. And that's where this, this important story of Jesus' temptation, that's where it takes us. Watch verse 3. So then we get into the actual temptation. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Don't forget, this is tied directly to the baptism, the opening ceremony. The Father declared, This is my beloved Son. Jesus, the Messiah, is the very Son of God. And so, Matthew, we've, we've learned this, that he's not only the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, but he is God become flesh, right? And so here, the Father has declared he's the Son of God, and Satan says, oh yeah, we'll see about that. And certainly, Satan's intention here is malicious. He's trying to derail the mission. He's trying to invalidate this proclamation that the Father has made that Jesus is the Son. So, He's going to invalidate it by actually kind of twisting and turning that identity of Jesus as the Son of God. He says, if you are the Son of God, and I'm not sure you are, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Tell these stones to become bread. This is, I think, a private moment. I don't think there's, there's not a crowd there for sure. But Jesus was hungry. He was, his body was weak, 40 days. I mean, it, 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 to the limit. And Satan says, tell these stones to become bread. Listen, he could have done it. I mean, we'll see him feed the 5,000 before we're done with Matthew. I mean, he, he can do it. If you are the Son of God, then do this. But Jesus doesn't take orders from Satan. So verse 4, he answered, It is written, man must not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus, in responding to Satan, goes to the word. He goes actually to Deuteronomy 8, which is actually a, a passage of Scripture. All of his quotations in this scene come from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 8. The, the quotations, though, are from a, a chunk of Deuteronomy where God is preparing his people after failing in the wilderness for so many years. He's preparing them to go into the land that he's promised them. And so really, again, it's that reminder that Israel had failed, but man, they had the word of God. They had what they needed to succeed. 
And, and Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Specifically here, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he says, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Yes, he's hungry, but there's something in life that's more important than my physical desire. We see here Jesus is the means and the model for defeating temptation. Here we see he's the means. Jesus is the son of God, and he proves it not by turning stones into bread, like surely we would have done, or turning stones into Chipotle burritos, or whatever, I mean, whatever you would have done, right? You would have, done, you would have been so hungry, you would have, I want what I want, right? But here Jesus proves he's the son of God, and he's the word who became flesh. He proves his glory by refusing to take orders from Satan and letting hunger drive him to action. He won't let his physical desire drive him to action. If there is a gospel in our culture at large at this moment, it is what you want, you should have. But Jesus defeated that temptation. He defeated that temptation. He said, no, he is worthy of our faith. Brothers and sisters, he succeeded where we so often fail. Have you ever let a physical desire motivate you to doing something that you know you shouldn't do? And it's a daily battle, isn't it? Hunger sexual desire, even just exhaustion. And we use it as an excuse. Ah, well, you know, I was just feeling... Listen, spend 40 days out in the Judean wilderness, okay, in the summer, and then we'll talk. Jesus succeeds where we so often fail. He is worthy of our faith. He proves he's the Son of God by not turning those stones into bread. He's the means of our victory. And this victory over Satan, it's just a little foreshadowing of the greater victory that we're going to see unfold all throughout Matthew, which will culminate where? In his death and his resurrection. Satan is a loser. Jesus proves it here. So yes, he's the means of defeating temptation. It's by faith in him that we're forgiven. It's by faith in him that we have victory. He succeeds where we fail. It's because of his victory that we can have forgiveness. But brothers and sisters, he's also the model of defeating temptation. We can learn from our Lord and Savior here how to handle temptation. Specifically here, Jesus models prioritizing what? Spiritual health over our physical desires. Spiritual health over our physical desires. The Word of God is more important than what's for dinner. And, and it sounds so simple and so ridiculous on the one hand. On the other hand, again, we live in a culture where we never say no to ourselves. And so here, Jesus says, listen, just so we're clear, if you're a follower of me, you just need to know that my word is more important than what your body is telling you you want. Think about that for just a second. The word of God is more important than what your body is telling you you must have. Jesus models to us how to defeat temptation here by remembering his word. And what do we need to live? What do we need? What must we have to survive? I know you'd say food, shelter, and love. (laughs) But Deuteronomy chapter 8 says you need the word of God to survive. That's what you need. I wonder, do you prioritize your spiritual health over your physical desires? There are so many ways we face this temptation. 
Philippians 3.19, the, the Apostle Paul talks about the enemies of, of Christ, and he says their God is their stomach. Again, I think that's on the dollar bill now, right? Our God is our stomach, says the guy who jokes about Chipotle in every other sermon. So, I, you know, I take that, right? Their glory is their shame. They're focused on earthly things. You see, if Jesus had failed in that temptation, right, he would have communicated that, you know, actually, yeah, your hunger is more important than your spiritual health. That what your body's telling you you need, that's more important. But no, Jesus was victorious and he models for us. Listen, you, you cling to the word of God there and maybe your body says, I want it, I want it, I want it, I must have it, I must have it. Or you're weak, you're tired, you're exhausted. And yet what you must remember is that the word of God is what we live by. That's where we get our sustenance. Spiritual health is more important than our physical desires. You push back against the cultural gospel. If it feels good, do it. But when we push, look, just being candid, when we push back against that gospel, you're going to be accused of being puritanical. And that's actually a compliment for whatever it's worth. So you just take it and run with it, right? In our culture, to be puritanical, is it's an insult. Allow me to quote a Puritan, my friend John Owen, who in 1656 wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. I mean, that's like the shortened title, but of The Mortification of Sin. How to kill sin in your life. Not super popular today. But it was an exposition of Romans 8.13. This massive deal was only, it was on one verse. Where again, the Apostle Paul describes how we as believers mortify, we kill sin in our lives. It's a practical discussion of how we handle temptation. And Owen said, Indwelling sin always abides while we're in this world, and therefore it is always to be mortified, to be killed. You have to learn to say no to yourself. That's what Owens is saying. You have to learn to say no to yourself. And is it puritanical? Only because the Puritans loved God and the Bible. And so that's why mortification of sin is, is a book. That's why it's a thing. And brothers and sisters, you're going to face that moment when it could be food for you. Food could be your God. It could be pursuit of pleasure. It could be whatever it is. And your body's screaming at you. You must have. And there just has to be that moment where you say, hold on a second. I'm not just an animal. I'm a son of the king. I'm a daughter of the king. And my spiritual health is more important than what my body is screaming right now. Or just remember Deuteronomy 8. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on the Word of God. We've got to let the Word of God win in our battle with temptation. And when we fail, and we will, from time to time, we will fail, what do we do? We look to Jesus, who was victorious. Because you know what, brothers and sisters, when you put your faith in Jesus... This is what happens. Not only are we gifted forgiveness of our sins, the removal of our unrighteousness, but we are also gifted his righteousness. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your failure as you give in to temptation. He sees his victorious son. And that's, that's the beauty of the gospel. That not only are we forgiven of our failures, but we're gifted his righteousness. So we know our position is secure as his son or daughter all the more reason not to give in to Satan. Our physical desires will tempt us. 
But by faith, we are forgiven of our failures and we are equipped to cling to the word of God and say, my spiritual health is more important than what my body is telling me right now. Physical desires aren't our only front in this war, are they? It goes on, watch verse 5 as Jesus faces a second temptation. The second and third temptation, the order is inverted in Luke. Uh, Luke doesn't present them in chronological order, but Matthew does. So in verse 5, we pick it up. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. If you pause there in verse 6, here, uh, either, either in a visionary experience, uh, probably more likely that because of the third temptation, we'll see it again. Uh, you know, Jesus is taken to the, the pinnacle of the temple, probably the southeastern summit above the Kidron Valley, where it's like, if you fall off that high building, you're a goner. That's, that's, that's the technical Greek meaning of the term there, okay? So that's where he is. And so Satan takes him up there, and then Satan says, oh, you want to play the scripture game? I can play that game. And Satan quotes Psalm 91, verse 11 which is a psalm about God providing for the needs of his people, especially in warfare and in dire circumstances, and his angels actually providing needs for us. But here he quotes it to Jesus. He says, oh yeah, you know Psalm 91. Jesus, don't you? His angels are going are gonna to rescue you, and they won't even let your foot hit the ground. So what's going on? What, what, what's the temptation? Well, the temptation here is for Jesus to presume, to demand or dictate to the Father, right, what should be happening. So he says, prove you're the Son of God, jump off the temple, have the angels come and rescue you, you do what you want to do. Basically, it, it's, it's the Father serves you, it's the angels serve you, it's your, it's you, you're the center of it all, right? That's the idea. But notice how Jesus responds in verse 7. Watch it. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Now we're in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But here in this quotation from Deuteronomy 6, same context, Israel failed, but where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Israel did test the Lord their God. And specifically, they tested the Lord their God in Exodus 17 with water. And so that's probably the, or that is the reference in Deuteronomy 6 to that failure in Exodus 17 with, with water. And they demanded water from God. And it was again, me, 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 I, 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 I want, I want, I want. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 hold on a second. We don't dictate terms to God. We, listen, Satan, you've misunderstood here. We don't test the Lord your God. By testing means dictate or command. We certainly don't treat God as if he serves us. Jesus is the means of defeating temptation. He's the means here of defeating temptation because he refused to test the Father. He refused to compete with God the Father. He refused to dictate to God the Father. Of course, we've already seen it in the baptism. Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect unity. But here Jesus proved he's the faithful Son by his humble submission to God the Father and his dependence on the Spirit, right? And so that's the reality. If the Spirit had prompted him and said, hey, jump, right? Then that, that, that's the mission. Father, Son, and Spirit in unity. But the Father had not ordained that. The Spirit was not leading him to do that. And so Jesus, the faithful Son, humbles himself to the will of the Father, He's submissive to the leadership of the Spirit, and he doesn't do it. He says, I'm not going to test God. I'm not going to dictate terms here. I'm not going to demand. 
Of course, Jesus could have. And he could have summoned the angels. He's just as much God as the Father and the Spirit are. But once again, he's showing us what true faithful sonship looks like. So Jesus, it's not just that he followed the Spirit into the wilderness, which is remarkable in and of itself. He follows the Spirit into the wilderness, and he's dependent on the Spirit even at this very moment of temptation where he says, I'm not going to go rogue. I'm not going to go on my own here, and I'm certainly not going to make, make my will trump the will of the Father. It's not going to be about me. Jesus is the means of victory over temptation because he proved he's the, he's the faithful son. He followed the Spirit into the wilderness. He followed the Spirit for 40 days and 40 nights without eating. He followed the Spirit by letting Satan lead him around on this little, you know, charade and up to the pinnacle of the temple. He's going to follow the Spirit throughout Galilee as he ministers. He's going to follow the Spirit as the Spirit leads him a few times up to Jerusalem for feasts. He's going to follow the Spirit as he heals and as he teaches But don't you know, that's not where he stops following the Spirit. He follows the Spirit. He submits his will to the will of the Father in perfect unity as he goes to the cross. He he was successful. He succeeded where Israel had failed, where so many others had failed, where Adam and Eve had failed. And brothers and sisters, he's successful where you and I have failed. Because I would venture to guess that many days... Maybe every day, we struggle to humble ourselves and submit to God. We struggle to follow the Spirit. You know what we do? We put the Lord our God to the test. But Jesus didn't. And so he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our faith because he was victorious. Again, by faith in him, when when God looks at us, he sees the obedience of Jesus. He doesn't see defeat and temptation. He sees victory over temptation. Again, Jesus is that, the means of our victory. He was successful, but he's also the model, the model of how we defeat temptation. What does he model here? Jesus models here spirit-dependent service of God. Spirit-dependent. That should be a capital S there. That's, a, that's an error on your notes. Holy Spirit-dependent, dependence on God. Holy, de- Holy Spirit-dependent service of God. So the temptation for us will be to demand of God, to dictate of God, to act as if if God exists to serve us. You know, that's actually Canaanite thinking, which is why, again, Deuteronomy 6 or 8 is so helpful here. Because if there's one thing Israel needed to know before they went into the land, it's that, listen, you don't treat God the way the Canaanites treat their gods. Listen, in Canaanite religion, just so we're all up to speed here, in Canaanite religion, you would convince the gods to do things for you by worship acts, by, you know, rituals, sacrifice, cutting yourself, doing all the the Canaanite things. You try to get the gods to do for you what you want. You're trying to pull the strings there and and get the right lever so that your kids will be successful, so that the the job will work out, so that uh, you'd win the war, so that you'd beat your competitor, whatever it is, right? So you get better from the sickness, and so you have to manipulate the gods to do. And basically, the the Canaanite gods and goddesses are like, you know, genies in a bottle. You just got to get the right one on the right day. But ultimately, it's about you, what you want. You're the center of it. They ultimately serve you. And that's exactly how we think today. So often, we view God not as the one to worship and serve, but as the one to give us what we want. 
like some kind of Canaanite Santa Claus. There's an image for you. Just stay on the good list so you can get what you want. There's an example here I think that's common, just a a transactional view of our faith. Where it goes like this, I want my kids to be successful, and so I'm going to put in my time. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to give money to the the gospel, to the the work of the church. You know, I'm going to watch my swearing. I'm I'm going to be a good person, and that's a transaction. That's what I pay. And then, God, the deal is you're going to give me good kids that are successful. You're going to bless this endeavor, right? Uh, God, you're going, to, you're going to bless my work, my new job, my, my schooling. You're going to bless that. You're going to bless this purchase, whatever. You're going to give me, because I'm going to, it's a deal. I'm going, to, I'm going to pay some. I could go do what everybody else is doing, God, but I'm not. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to do, put in my time. I'm going to endure Pastor Ryan's ridiculous maps and all of that. Like, I got to do that. But in exchange for that, Lord, I'm going to get something. In that way of thinking, subtle though it may be, you are the center. And you are dictating terms to the Lord, and you are putting the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, he's the model here for us. As he clings to the word of, as he clings to the word of God and says, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. I'm not going to. I'm not going to demand and dictate. By the way, side note here, beware satanic corruptions of Scripture. This Canaanite thinking, it's actually ref- reflected in the, in the prosperity gospel, one example. You know, you, gotta, you do the right things, then God will bless you, like that kind of thinking. But uh, that's a satanic corruption of Scripture. Satan uses Psalm 91.11 to Jesus. I mean, if he's, if he's not above throwing Scripture at Jesus, he's going to throw it at you. So just because someone quotes a verse doesn't mean necessarily that they're, they're leading you in the right direction, myself included. You open that Bible, you pray for God's help and discernment, and you, and you discern, you read, you be careful. Watch out for satanic corruption of Scripture. Again, I would, I, I'm helped by my friend John Owen here because he reminds us that the only way you can win this battle in temptation it's actually by following the Holy Spirit. And I just, this, this is worth discussing because that's what Jesus models here. Spirit dependence. He's not going to go rogue. He's not going to do his own thing, right? He's not going to put the Lord to the test. Well, in our lives, sometimes when we face temptation, we feel like I've just got to beat it, right? And I've got to do it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure it out. But the fact is, and Owen's on, he was on to it, uh, you know, 500 years ago, that that. If you're going to actually be successful navigating temptation, the only way you can do that is not by, you know, just buckling down and working hard and just you do it with willpower. It's actually by surrendering to the Spirit of God and following the Spirit's leadership. There's a moment there where you're saying, Lord, I need help. I, I need you to lead me here. And we're not, it's not that we don't have, it's not that there's not effort, it's not that we don't try, but we're just saying, okay, Lord, lead me, lead me in the right direction. We're following the leadership of the Spirit. By the way, that's Galatians 5, isn't it? That contrast between the, the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. When we follow the Spirit, we're, we're going to be victorious over temptation. Again, Jesus is the means, He has the victory, it's by faith in Him we're forgiven. But he's also the model for us here. He shows us how to navigate times when we want to be the center and we want to dictate terms to God. We want him to be our genie in the bottle. When you're tempted to do that, when you're tempted to treat God like your personal genie, get on your knees 
pray, humble yourself, acknowledge his authority, and ask for help from the Spirit. Ask the Spirit to help you follow God, not dictate terms to him. It's a temptation we all face, I think, making ourselves the center of the world. Well, Jesus was successful against that temptation. And there's one more where he's victorious. Watch verse 8 here in Matthew chapter 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. This is why we think maybe this is a visionary journey because there's no mountain you can see every nation. Anyway, it's beside the point here. He sees all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, all their splendor, riches, power, all of it. Verse 9, and he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. This one's a little different. It's not if you are the son of God, then do this. He says, let me make you an offer. Son of God, I'll give you all of it. I'll give you all of it. All the power, all the riches, the status, the whole thing. All it's going to cost you is just have to Get on your knees and worship me. Acknowledge I'm greater. Bow to my will. That's all you got to do, and I'll give it all to you, right? Fall down and worship me. Did Satan have the right or the authority to give away that, that, that prize, all the riches, all the kingdom? Well, temporarily, yeah. John 12, 31, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Ephesians 6, 11, 12, 1 John 5, 19. I'll talk about Satan having temporary authority over this world. And so for a moment there... Jesus, you know, there's actually a real offer here. I'll, I'll give it all to you. It's actually giving Jesus what's rightly his, but it's basically shortcutting it. I'm just going to microwave it. We're just gonna, I'm just going to give it to you. It's all it's going to cost you is you just have to worship me. You just have to bow to me. And of course, Jesus responds once again with the word, but notice what he does first. Watch verse 9. So interesting. Or verse 10. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan. Use your Bible should have it with an exclamation point. This is a command. When Satan commands Jesus, Jesus says no. Jesus relies on the word. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 again here in a moment. Jesus says no. When Jesus commands Satan, Satan obeys. Watch. Uh, verse 10. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy six thirteen. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. When, when Jesus commands Satan, because he actually has that authority, because he is the, the faithful son of God, Satan obeys. Once again, Jesus is victorious. And just so we're clear, he, he, he says, there's a scriptural reason why I'm not going to bow down and worship you, you punk. I, that's in the Greek. It's in there, okay? <laughs> he says, for it is written... Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, Israel failed in the wilderness to worship, the God, worship God only. They're, they're coming into the land. And in that instruction in, in the early chapters in Deuteronomy, there's preparation to go into the land. Listen, don't worship those Canaanite gods and goddesses. Don't give in to the cultures of the day. Worship God alone. That, you got to hold that line. That's what you're called to. And here Jesus is faithful in this temptation when Satan says, worship me and I'll give you whatever you want. He says, no, no, no. There's no worshiping you. Is only worshiping the one worthy of worship. Jesus is victorious here, once again, relying on his word. And he holds the line, refusing to compromise and give in to idolatry. We see his victory is 
final because the devil leaves him and angels come and begin to serve him. It's interesting, the angels coming and serving him, that's the fulfillment of Psalm 91, verse 11, isn't it? And I think that's Jesus just going, yeah, I can do that. Just watch. I'm not going to let you twist Scripture and, and use it for my own agenda outside of the, the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit. But just so we're all clear, yeah, Psalm 91, 11, yeah, it's good. It's right where it needs to be, and I'm faithful. So the angels come and minister to him, presumably feeding him, taking care of him, just like with Elijah in the wilderness. Proving his faithfulness, proving his identity once again as the Son of God. Jesus is the means of our victory over temptation. He's the means of defeating temptation because he refused idolatry, even with the promise of unlimited power and money. He succeeded where Faust failed. He continued to refuse to give in to idolatry. There were so many other gods he could have worshipped in his ministry, as we'll see. He could have worshipped the opinion of others. Because as the religious leaders, the most influential, powerful leaders in the Jewish community in the first century, as they responded to Jesus, they, they, they pressured him time and time again to get in line with their way of thinking and to stop doing what he was doing. He could have worshipped that, the, the fear of man. He certainly could have worshipped the fear of his family because his family was not a fan of what he was doing. He, he could have worshipped the pursuit of, of money and position. No doubt anybody who can work miracles can make a dime. Right? Set up shop, make a few bucks. He could have done that. He could have worshipped money in that sense. He could have called the angelic army and wiped out the Romans and, and taken the throne there in Jerusalem and established his kingdom right then and there with just taking earthly power and authority. Absolutely, he could have done that. He could have worshipped that power and authority. But he refused to compromise. He refused to compromise as he taught, as he healed. And brothers and sisters, he refused to compromise when he went to the cross for us. Where the, where the crowd cries out, if you are the Son of God, come down. It's not an accident. I think Satan was whispering in those people's ears. Is he the Son of God? If he was, he would come down. But Jesus succeeded where Israel failed, and he succeeds where you and I failed. Because, frankly, when I think about Satan's offer, I think about the story of Dr. Faust, I'm tempted by much less than unlimited wealth and power. Don't we give in to so much less? And we say, yes, I'll, I'll compromise for this or that. I'll... I'll I'll pursue this end as my primary goal, my chief end, my God, the money, the, the, the new car, the new house, the, the degree, the way people will think of me, the number of followers online, right? All the things, that, the, the way I want to be perceived by others, all these things, right? I'll, I'll worship that. I'll, I'll sell my soul to pursue that. And when we fail... It's because of our faith in Jesus alone that we're forgiven. He's the means of our victory, but he's also the model. He models refusing to worship false gods. Brothers and sisters, let's follow Jesus here. And let's insist that, no, we worship, 
We worship the Lord your God and serve only him. There's only one that we worship. And you know what? What's so beautiful is that in the gospel, when we say, when we say no to false gods and we, and we say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to trust Jesus, temporarily, you may give up money. You certainly will give up position in the world. You'll give up maybe how people think of you. You know, all of that. There's, there's a cost to following Jesus for sure. But you know what? In eternity, you get all the good stuff. Eternal blessing in, in Ephesians 1. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is ours in Christ Jesus. In 1 Peter, we have this inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and unfading. It never loses value. It's not going anywhere, and it's reserved in heaven for us. And that is what Jesus has secured for us through his victory. His victory over Satan here. His victory as he lived and as he taught, as he healed. And his victory as he died on the cross in our place and he rose from the dead. And listen, he's the means of our victory over temptation, but he's also the model. And when we say no to idolatry, we're not saying no to fulfillment. We're actually saying yes I will be satisfied forever in Christ. He has made provision for me. I don't have to stoop and pursue riches or glory or power or influence or you know, peer approval or whatever it is. Jesus models refusal to worship false gods no matter what. I wonder, will we? We sell our souls for so much less. And Jesus here, he's victorious where we fail. And when you fail, you confess it as sin, and you can be confident of your forgiveness because Jesus continues to defeat Satan all the way up to the cross. Yes, the crowd shouted, if you're the Son of God, come down, but he did not. He didn't come down until the work was done. That's how much he loves you and me. Listen, you're facing a battle we all face it. This battle, this, this battle with sin, the temptation. And the question is, not can we by our own willpower beat it? No, there's no, you can't. Of course you can't. But will we, will we look to Jesus as the means of our victory over temptation? By faith in him, we're forgiven and we're gifted righteousness. That's how he beat it. But will we also follow him as our model? Will we rely on the word of God? Will we say no to the physical desires trumping our spiritual health? Will we say no to dictating terms to God and insisting that he serve us? And will we say no to worshiping false gods? There was a, uh, there was a, a Christian group that did a song based on the Faust story. And the chorus was, it was interesting. And uh, in the chorus, this, you know, telling the story, and then they said, you have one life, you have one life, you have one life left to leave. I think they get it right there. That if you're going to really be victorious, you've got you've to surrender to the Spirit. You've got to say yes to the Son. You've got to honor the Father. You've got to say, you know what? It's not worth it. Jesus is the means and model of defeating temptation. The question is, will we follow him? So let's pray and let's ask God to help us do that. Lord, we humble ourselves again this morning and we thank you for your victory over temptation. We thank you that this is not a one-off, that it wasn't just a, a, a temporary victory, but it actually was the first installment of your ultimate victory through your death and resurrection. Lord Jesus, we praise you for crushing the head of the serpent.
We praise you that by faith in you, we are forgiven for our failures when we give in to temptation. Lord, help us not to despair, not to get caught in a cycle of shame and guilt, but rather to confess our sin because of your victory. And Lord, we praise you that you not only remove our unrighteousness, but you gift us righteousness. We praise you for that provision. We praise you for the victory we have in you. And Lord, we ask for your help. Help us to follow you. Holy Spirit, lead us. Help us to surrender our will and to humble ourselves and Lord, to to prioritize our spiritual health over physical desires. Lord, help us to to say no to this idea that we're the center of the universe and you serve us. And Lord, help us to say no to the constant temptation to idolatry. Help us to, to say no and to follow you by clinging to your word, by returning to the scripture, Lord, by by reminding ourselves of what is true and what matters for eternity. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified as we grow in our faith and as we grow in our capacity to follow you and to say no to temptation. Lord, we thank you that you are victorious where we fail. And we praise you that you have provided for us the resources we need to be successful even today. So we ask that you would do your work in us for your glory and for our benefit. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.